Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. If you could, could you please stand for the reading of the Scripture? We're reading from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless his word. We are uh, concluding a series today uh, in the book of Ephesians that we've been in for several months and uh, coming back to this uh, topic of spiritual warfare that Paul closes the book with. And if you've not um, been involved in a church very much, or this is relatively new to you, spiritual warfare definitely seems to be the, uh, the topic in the arena that is the strangest or the most difficult to comprehend. Um, it feels like something for extremely religious people or fanatics. But Paul wants us to think about it uh, as the mundane, normal Christian life. And to be frank, uh, that's not too far from our experience uh, in, in this culture. Often you'll hear um, athletes um, or entertainers of some kind who you don't hear from for several years. And when they come back sort of out of hiding, one of the things they always say is, I was working through some personal demons. Now, what Paul does in this text is he just gives a personality and some concrete reality behind phrases like that. To say that that's not just some sort of abstract thing that people draw on. There's something real in this world that's pressing that upon people. And last week what we did is we looked at the strategy of that darkness, the strategy of the evil one. Uh, Thomas Brooks, in his great work, he says this, the strategy of Satan really is he doesn't leave fang marks on the flesh, but lies on the heart. That the real strategy of Satan in spiritual warfare is to throw lies at you. And what's the response? What does Paul call us to do? He says to put on. This is, this, this is the language that frames the entire narrative for spiritual warfare, to put on. So let's learn three things about putting on this morning for spiritual warfare. What you put on, when you put it on, and thirdly, how you put it on. So first, what you put on. But what does Paul tell us to do? In verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God. 
Okay, this is the same language actually that Paul used in Ephesians 4, 24, when he says, put on the new self. It's that God gives you a, a, a new self through the work of the Holy Spirit, but you actually have to live into it. You have to put it on. And what he's going to do is the armor of God is a metaphorical way of talking about the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of salvation that God gives his people in Christ. And what you have to do as a believer is put it on. Now, let me give you some some theological background and context for what he means. Because when we talk about salvation, there's actually two categories that theologians have used to talk about it. It's that salvation is both accomplished and it is applied. Let me explain. That is, God looked at the broken world, and what solved it was not you believing or are you hoping in something? What solved it is that God sent His Son into the world to live a life that none of us could live, and none of us were living without sin, without stain, exactly stewarding the world the way the world was meant to be stewarded. But coming into a dark world, He didn't just live the life that we needed to live. He bore the curse that all of us brought on ourselves and goes to the cross and pays the penalty for all of the brokenness of the world, and then proves it to be justified and true and real in rising from the dead. So that when Jesus dies on the cross and walks out of the grave, it is the full work stamp accomplishment of salvation. Now, it's left up there, and how it becomes your salvation is the Holy Spirit then takes what He has accomplished and applies it to your life so that you then, through that, can stand before God justified, without, without guilt, declared right with Him. Along with that, you're given a new self. You're given a new personality. You're given a whole new life where God changes you through what's done. And what Paul is telling us to do is this says, all of that, It's no good if you just give it a thumbs up. You have to put it on. He's saying, those things that Jesus did, I want you to appropriate them as a belt, as a helmet, as a sword, as if something were going on, and what God has given you objectively becomes true for you subjectively. And you appropriate it for what's happening in your life. I mean, think about it like this. Father's Day was uh, last week, and, you know, you always get interesting things on Father's Day, but it's no good to just get a gift and just smile at it, because what your kids expect you to do is, well, Dad, when are you going to use that? When are you going to get that out and cook with that, or when are you going to get that out and wear that? And what it means is, is a gift is not appropriately used unless it's used, And your salvation works the same way. And Paul is saying, use it as spiritual warfare. And if if you break down this armor, you really there really are seven things here in the text. If you include praying in the spirit, and the way we ought to think about it, I think, is that um, the belt is the the foundational uh, part. And I'll come back to that. And but then after that, there are three sets of twos. And I think they work this way that what it looks like to have on the armor of God is to repent, to believe, and to fight. That it looks like this. 
repent. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes that you will walk in the gospel of peace. Now, everybody who would have read this probably would have immediately had their immediate mind, if they were Jewish, back to Isaiah 59. What it says is, the Lord looked at the world, He looked at Israel, and there was no justice, there was nobody living for the truth, and He puts on a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness. And righteousness is a word that is used several different ways in the New Testament, but here it's being used by Paul to talk about who humans are meant to be and what God wants the world to be like. He's talking about justice. And when it says the gospel of of, of peace, that's a word that comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which talks about the world being restored to the way that it was meant to be. And what he's saying is that as a Christian, this new identity that you've been given, you are to walk out into the world bearing this new world, bearing the new identity and the promises of what the God is going to make the world to be. And you ought to aim your life in that. And when you don't aim that way, and when you don't follow through, you look in and repent. Now, why is that so profound? Because in spiritual warfare, what the, what the, the deceiver will make you do is say, that righteousness, that's not how the world was meant to be. Or you want the world to be healed, it's not walking that way. And you know what he will also make you do is when you see that, you'll be filled with so much shame and so much embarrassment that you will hide and you'll create your own little fig leaves. And what spiritual warfare does is it says, I know how God wants me to be. He wants me to bear this this righteousness. He wants me to walk in these ways. And when I don't, I will come clean. Because if you admit fault, you know what you're doing? You're cutting through the lies of the devil. Because what everybody will want to do is either hide from our faults or morally cover them up. And to say, well, well, don't look at my faults over here. Look at how much I'm doing over here. And every time you do that, you've given in. But how you begin to do that is is you repent. You fight by repenting and saying, I know I'm supposed to be this way. Lord, help me be this way. You don't just repent, you believe. Verse 16 and 17, it says, put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Now, these here, I think, are talking about learning to use the objective nature of the gospel. Look, faith in our enlightenment world, is, is so associated with uh, your personal expression. That is, uh, when we think about faith, we think about things like, how much do you have? Or do you, do you, are you really all in? Do you fully believe? Because there's a lot of people who hear things like this and go, I mean, I'm just new to this. I don't know how much I believe. I struggle to believe. But the profound nature of faith is not how much you have, but what it's in. And Paul says, faith for a Christian looks like this. It looks like a shield. Because if somebody's shooting an arrow at you, how much do you have to believe that shield can actually deflect the arrows to hold it up? Just enough to hold it. You don't have to be fully confident in the shield. 
And your confidence, if it's greater than this person is over here, no more protects them than you. Because the power of faith is not in how much you believe. It's in the fullness of what God has given you in the cross of Jesus. So that every time a flaming arrow comes your way and says, are you really a Christian? Do you really love God? You can hold up the righteousness of Jesus and says, you have nothing to say to me because my God has said everything that I need to hear already in the gospel. And Paul says that works like a shield. And so your helmet, it's like the hope of salvation, the hope of the gospel. Because what he's, giving, what he's trying to give you here is when you get lies thrown at you, you need the assurance of the gospel. J.C. Ryle who's a a bishop of the Church of England, um, has this great chapter in his book, Holiness, on the the idea of assurance. And he says, look, assurance of faith is something that's available for every Christian, but not every Christian actually gets. Because he says it's possible to be saved and to never actually grasp assurance in the same way it's possible to be a flower that ever actually fully blossoms. And because what God wants for you is not just to know that you're loved, but to be sure of it. And to be sure when the lies are being thrown at you that nobody loves you, nobody is for you, and God will not forgive you again. But how the gospel can work as a shield is you hold it up with assurance to know that every single time a lie is thrown my way, you stand confident in that identity. You repent and you believe and you fight. So verse 17 and 18, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then verse 18, he goes on to talk about praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Now, these are two things that the church has always put together for the right reasons, the Bible and prayer. Why? Because how does assurance get in? How does that righteousness that God wants you to walk in, how do you appropriate that and make that personal for you? It's always through the work of the Bible and prayer. Because what the Bible and prayer together will do is it will train your mind, it will train your heart, it will train your emotions with the promises of the gospel. The Psalms are a great way to do this. If you you read through the Psalms in a couple months, what you'll do is you'll get the full variety of emotions. You'll get people that are like, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You'll get people looking at the world and saying, God, are you even there? You'll get people coming to God and saying, how broken I am and I need your forgiveness. You'll get songs of everlasting compassion and unimaginable forgiveness. You get the full variety of what it means to be a human being in a broken world trying to follow a God. And if you read that over and over again and try to hammer that into your soul, what will happen is that the armor of God will become an instinct for you. It will just begin to come out in life. Think think about the Bible in prayer this way. Like if you are um, putting a bed together, I mean, the main part of the bed is the frame, you know, the, the posts, the thing that holds the, the bed up. 
But it can't do any of that without the nuts and bolts and the fasteners. The way that the Bible and prayer works as a sword of the Spirit is that it is like a fastener for bedposts and bed frames. That what you need is to believe that God is with you and that He is good and that He is for you. But what will fasten that to the bottom of your soul is if you have Bible and prayer regularly in your life. And Paul says, put that on. That's the armor of God. Secondly, when do you put it on? He says in verse 14, fasten the belt of truth. Now, the belt, I mentioned this last week, it's a word actually for a leather sheath. It's not like a tool belt. But it was something that sat underneath the rest of the armor. It's not something you sort of get out. It's something that's always on. And the word for fasten it's not a great translation for us here because it's the word parazomene, which it means elsewhere to gird up, to be prepared. Uh, there's a place in Luke 12 where Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, and here's the word, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. and He will come and serve them. That language, he will dress himself for service, to get prepared, to plan to go somewhere. Paul says, that ought to be your whole life. That you ought to always live as if you're about to go into battle. See, the the point of what he's making is that you don't get into the middle of battle. Cease you know, things coming at you, see flaming arrows coming your way and go, now where's that shield I had? Where, did I remember to bring my sword? I better get dressed. And if you don't have any big problems in your life, if you don't have anything pressing you right now, like, like a job crisis or a challenge in your marriage or with something with one of your children, the danger is it's very easy to begin to drift and to become very comfortable, and to think everything is just kind of blasé. And what that does is it makes you incredibly vulnerable for spiritual attack. There's a place in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul talks about the Christian life like being an athlete in training. And what he means is, is if you look at an athlete, here's how an athlete thinks. You know, hey, Alex, you you should come out with us tonight. We're going to go to this great place and stay out all night, and everybody's going to be there. It's going to be amazing. An athlete says, thanks for the invitation. I can't. I got a game in the morning. I got to go home. I got to get ready for that. I got to get enough sleep. I got to eat the right things. Or, hey, Alex, we're, we're, we're all going to, you know, eat these, you know, box of ice cream together. Come have this. I can't. I'm training. I'm trying to maintain weight. I'm trying to stay in shape. And Paul says, like, that, that's how the Christian life should be. And when an athlete finishes the game and finishes the season, it's not as though they say, well, this is great. For the next six months, I'm just going to eat whatever I want and sit on the couch and do nothing. No, if they do that and they show back up to training camp, they're going to be miserable. What an athlete does is you're always in season. You're always living that out. And Paul says that's how the Christian life should be. You can't just come to God 
when things are going miserable and expect all of a sudden to make it make sense. If you only try to connect with the gospel when your life is falling apart, what that means is, is faith will always be abstract to you, and it will never make sense in the mundane, but it will also feel like it doesn't work because it's not healing the thing that you came to Him for. But what Paul says is that you ought to always be getting your mind and your heart and your emotions prepared for whatever life can throw at you. And can I have one application for you? I've talked to countless people um, in the last month who just randomly, it feels like they all had a conversation about this and then decided, let's go tell Alex over like three weeks about how many churches post-COVID in L.A. are just, are dying. I'm talking like enormous things that have like a thousand people and are, are laying off pastors and laying off staff and stuff like that. And that there's this like pattern that, uh, well, we didn't do that for a while. Maybe we don't need that. Don't give in to that lie. Because how you get your heart and your mind trained to always be putting on the armor is to be with people and to be in community with them and to come regularly with them, to have them speaking to you about their life, to have them reading the Bible for you, to you hearing preaching, to you taking the Lord's Supper, to you participating in worship together. Do not cease to give into the, excuse me, do not cease to come together, but always be prepared. And if you do this, look, if you're always doing it, it begins to train you to have life ready no matter what it throws at you. You ever heard the phrase, um, you Miyagi'd me? You know, it, it comes from that 80s uh, movie, The Karate Kid, where what happened, it, it, it works this way. Uh, you have that kid, Daniel LaRusso, who uh, he wants to learn karate. So he goes to Mr. Miyagi, and what Mr. Miyagi does is he says, great, paint my fence, um, sand my floor, uh, you know, uh, paint this this way. And, and he does it for days, and he's so annoyed. Why am I doing this? Why would you have me do these things that feel so abstract and make no sense? And all of a sudden, one night, he starts, uh, he, he's like, lost it, and Mr. Miyagi just punches at him. And the kid, like, it shows him, you know, he just reacts like he was painting the fence. And he realizes everything that this man had me do was all instinctively training me for what I wanted to learn. And if you will not, if you will keep coming together, and you will expose yourself to Bible and prayer, Bible and prayer, Bible and prayer, and all of these things, you know what will happen is that life will throw you things 10 years from now and you will instinctively react with the promises of the gospel. Like the sword will be ready and the shield will be out there. That's what it is. That's how you, when you do it. Thirdly, lastly, how do you actually put this on? Well, Paul says, put on the armor of God. And what, one thing that's getting at right away is that this is not just willpower. This is not just you uh, trying harder. This is not just you making sure you're really religiously zealous. 
There's a biblical context for this. And, and to make sense of the verse, you've got to know the whole chapter and another chapter. You've got to know the book, the book, sort of the whole context of the Bible. Here's, here's the context for biblical spiritual warfare. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve are there in this blessed garden with the, with the Lord Himself. And Satan comes in and exposes them to the first spiritual attack in the history of the world with a lie, saying, is God really good? Do you really want to believe Him? And what God does is responds with a prophecy that doesn't just say, you know what, I'll, I'll talk to Him about that. He says, no, no, I will crush the serpent's head. And you get right away, you get this, this, this warrior-like language this warfare language that God will look at evil and He will crush its head. And then as you move through the Old Testament, what happens is you see the people of Israel in bondage in Exodus, and God comes after them and delivers them. And, and they begin to call the Lord in the Old Testament a divine warrior because He takes them out of slavery and takes them into a promised land in any people group that threatens them. The Lord goes with them in battle and they prevail. But it's not just for Israel, because when Israel turns on justice and oppression for widows and for orphans and for all sorts of, of vulnerable people, God becomes a warrior on them as well. So what happens is, is He says, listen, I will fix all of this and I will restore all of this when my divine warrior comes. And the language the Old Testament gives you for that is the Son of Man and a prophecy in Daniel 7. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, actually what He calls Himself more often than anything else is the Son of Man. And, and people are blown away because they say, this is it. This is the divine warrior we have been waiting on for centuries. And they're constantly asking Him, when will you overthrow Rome? When will you take that government that does nothing like the breastplate of righteousness, that does nothing like the gospel of peace. And when will you take out the sword? And you know what he does? Is he goes around preaching. And he goes around forgiving. And he goes around healing. And he goes around loving. And, and when it comes to the end of his life, and he's going to be killed and he's going to be put on trial... Peter's there to defend him, and he, well, he pulls out a sword. And what does he say? He says, Peter, put away that sword. Because I'm not coming to bring a sword of judgment. I'm coming to go under it and to bear it. And what you begin to realize is that this, this son of man, this divine warrior, is going to go into battle, and not to kill people, but to die himself. So that God's plan of spiritual warfare is going to be accomplished in the death of this man and in the loss of his life. So that when Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, he says that when Jesus actually died on the cross, one thing he did is he disarmed the authorities in this world. And you, you know what that's teaching you and I? Is that spiritual warfare, the little skirmishes of our life, are fought in the heart with a weapon that doesn't look like a weapon. And Paul, Paul, he gives us a hint here in, in the end of this chapter. He says in verse 19, And pray also for me that the words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I speak. Here's here's how it works. The spiritual battle that God wants Christians to engage in is not the power struggle of politics. It's not the angry territorial battles of schools or neighborhoods or curriculum or any kind. The battle is first and foremost in the hearts of human beings, specifically in the church, that you would live out the same way that Jesus himself lived out in the ministry of love, healing, forgiveness in the kingdom of God. How do you do that? You know how you do it? You look to him. Look, anger, anger is an enormous battle for us. Somebody's going to make you so angry today or tomorrow. And, and when that comes, you have to realize this, this is a battle. And here's the lie in anger, is that if I give in to anger and I, and I hate this person or I talk ill will about them or I make sure something happens to them, the lie is that justice will have been served and you'll be declared right and you'll be freed from this anger. You never are, and nothing ever gets fixed. I mean, Anne Lamont, she once said, uh, hating somebody else in revenge is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. So how do you do that? How do you get out of that? Because the fear, if, if I don't get angry, if I don't hate this person, they'll just, they'll just get away with it. So what you do, here's how you put it on. You look to God and you say, God, do do you care at all? Do you care at all about what this person does? And you know what his answer with the breastplate of righteousness says is absolutely he does. And how much did he care? He cared enough to send his son to die for that. And you realize, how does God look at this thing this person did? He died for that. And what does he say to you who, who is so vengeful and angry? He says, my child, you are forgiven. You realize when you look to God in all of your anger, every single time he responds in compassion. And if you will look to him and you will stare in the face of how he has spoken to you, how he has treated you, how he has equipped you through everything in Jesus. When those little moments come up of anger, of rage, of lust, of envy, and you realize how he speaks to you in forgiveness, how he has met you in every single way, look, then you can begin to forgive. And when you begin to forgive, or you begin to walk away, you are winning the battle of the cosmic universe. You know the story of Dunkirk um, at the, uh, in World War II where the English were stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk in, uh, in the, on the be- beaches of France and the Germans are, 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 are just going to take out the English army and it's going to be the end. And they don't ha- the Navy doesn't have enough boats to come get them. So what ended up happening is the largest naval rescue in the history of war. And the, the people who did it were just little fishermen. 
like little dinghy boats that's, that drove across the English Channel and rescued the army. That probably was the most uh, meaningful part that turned it for Western Europe. It was a bunch of nobodies in, in boats that you would have never thought would have been seen in a war, won the war. That's what Christian warfare is all about, is that if you will take up the weapons that the world would never call a weapon, like forgiveness and compassion and empathy and counter-conditional love, you will begin to win the only war that matters, and you can stand firm. Let me pray. Father, help us. Lord, help us to, um, to look to you, to see how compassionate, forgiving, and gracious you are, how merciful and what an upside-down Savior you are, that, Lord, everything you gave us in the gospel of the kingdom, Lord, it was not the way that we expected it. It was not the way the world works. It was the upside-down way to heal and restore the world, the only way it could be restored. May we follow you. Lord, help us to go your way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.